This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This morning I was uh, listening to the book of Revelation. There's something, nothing quite like the book of Revelation to sober you up and remind you of the awesome power of God Almighty. And a lot of us have a tendency to camp on uh, the certain softer qualities of God. And the book of Revelation, which some of us might strategically avoid, uh, is a wonderful meditation on the justice, the wrath, the righteousness, the faithfulness of God. And some of us have a tough time allowing that lens to even uh, accompany our vision of God, but it's uh, very, very important. And one of the things that stood out to me today is this judgment that is coming on the peoples of this earth because of their rebellion against God and these bulls that are being poured out and just disaster, uh, catastrophe. And it says, but they did not repent. Another catastrophe, but they did not repent. Another catastrophe, but they did not repent. Instead, they blaspheme God and they curse God. And it's amazing to see that that which actually has the power to save us, when we are going through difficulty in our life, when we are seeing, and this is, I think, where the acute burden for me is, when we're seeing in our nation the breakdown of our moral framework and we're seeing the just punishment that is coming from the ideology that we have supported and spawned, and we are seeing the disaster. We are seeing the breakdown. We are seeing the violence. Instead of repenting, we curse God and blaspheme, and we blame it on him. And I guess maybe it's even more acute just because of what took place uh, in Colorado Springs right down the road from us uh, on Friday, that the nation is turning and blaming it on Christians, blaming it on those that hold high values and are actually anti-abortion, as opposed to seeing who is actually perpetrating this, which is the devil himself. This is evil, is what it is. And the man who gives up his life to defend is a Christian pastor. And somehow in all of this, we lose sight of truth and reality, and when the bowls are being poured out, we curse God instead of humble ourselves and repent before a just and righteous creator. The thing I would like to do as a start, even though it has nothing to do with my message, is I'd like to pray for this pastor's wife and his children, and I'd like to pray for his congregation this morning. Uh, There is something about this story that I think has, um, uh, has a lot of impact value for us to recognize that Here's a man standing for something that likely he wouldn't support ideologically, but it's the value of human life as well. And to stand in in the path of a bullet doing your job as a policeman 
And as a pastor, simultaneously, to recognize the beauty and the power of that picture is, is quite something. And I would like to uh, stand for his family and for his congregation. And uh, I want to pray also that God would turn what was meant for evil into a powerful good. Not just for that church and not just for the community of Colorado Springs, but for this nation. We aren't doing so well. And the church oftentimes is fearful instead of bold. And we cower instead of are courageous in the very moments that truth is needed more than ever. Father, I just want to lift up uh, this man's family, his wife and his children. I don't know their names. But I ask for your grace and your mercy to be given to them today. I pray for the comforting mercies, the comforting graces of the kingdom of heaven to be bestowed upon them and upon this congregation, that they would know how to wisely and rightly appropriate this, this suffering and this challenge in their life. And Lord Jesus, that they would glorify you in and through it. And Lord, those of us that do see the truth, that we would repent. Those of us that do recognize a just and righteous God, that we would take these statements, these symbols in our culture, as symbols that we are not headed in the direction we ought to be heading. And Lord Jesus, we are bearing the fruit of hell and not the fruit of heaven in this land. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would humble ourselves and repent. And Lord Jesus, that you would see fit to show us a mercy, to give us an opportunity of repentance, to give us space in order to find salvation. Lord Jesus, I do ask that you would call forth your remnant, you would call forth those that you sought to save and seek to rescue and that you would cause us to turn and seek your face. Lord, that we would be moved to prayer unlike we ever have before in our lives and that we would plead with the God of heaven to show mercy and to give us grace to endure whatever lies ahead. But Lord Jesus, I pray that one thing that would be known about every one of us in this room is that we loved as you loved and we rejoiced as you rejoiced, and that the smile in our face and in our soul could not be wiped away no matter the difficulty that we faced. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we submit to you today. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. It's been a very, very special week for uh, the Ludi family. There were multiple times when uh, we as a family sat down and were walking through some deeply spiritual things in our home. And in a sense, this message flowed out of that. Uh, we <coughs> was working with my kids in a very, very specific dimension of their spiritual lives. And that has to do with what we allow in, inside, and what we meditate upon in our minds. And so I wanted to almost give us a review message. If you've been around Ellerslie for any length of time, Every now and then I give a message on self-control. And so for those of you that are familiar with it, I tell you what, just the refresher course, there's nothing quite like it. For those of you that have never heard this, this can greatly impact your life. Holding the high ground, a study in the oft-forgotten grace of self-governance. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with how grace works, grace is empowering. It's like the life of God, the work of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the errands of God in our life. So God gives us a command, and then we look in our own pockets and go, God, I'll try and do that for you. And he goes, you can't do it for me. You don't have what you need. And so I've given you grace. 
And so grace is that which enables us to accomplish the errands of God. And so grace works in a lot of different ways, and it's used in many different ways in the New Testament. And so my use of it there is in, in the book of, in, in, when Peter's writing about the graces, he calls them, history calls them the seven graces. One of those graces is called self-control, which seems really strange. I mean, a grace called self-control. Well, it's also a fruit of the Spirit. It is an evidence of God's working in us that we are self-controlled. But a lot of us, when we get the idea of self-control, we think that it means I need to restrain myself. Because most of us, when we heard about self-control in the very beginning of our lives, it was our parents that were saying, you need to be self-controlled. And so where where do we go to get this self-control? We dig in our own pockets trying to find it. And as a result there is a certain measure of discipline and restraint that you can muster in and of yourself. But that's not what the Bible is talking about. And so as we go into this message, this is an idea that is far beyond just standing still when your mom is talking for too long after church. And you're very excited to get home and watch the football game, and your mom says, show a little self-control. This is far beyond that. We have staked the whole future of American civilization, not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of all our political institutions upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. James Madison's famous quote, which has come under scrutiny, and people are saying we can't find it in any textbooks. It's still a great quote. Even if, even if James Madison didn't say it, it's actually still a really good quote. Uh, But the history of America is founded upon an idea, and that is that we are going to be a country that isn't functioned just after external law and order, but is a country that is based on Christian ethic, which is the idea that God will indwell his people and enable us to function in a way that doesn't necessarily require strong external government. What a great idea. And in a sense, it is a wonderful idea. However, if that nation does not govern itself, what will happen? That external government will increase and grow and bloat. And so here's another quote from James Madison, which is able to be discovered and found out where it comes from. And this is Federalist Papers, number 39. In this Republican form of government, we rest all our political experiments on the capacity of mankind for self-government. This entire nation's idea was founded upon the idea that we would be Christian and that we would have an enabling grace to function in our Christianity. And as a result, everything would begin to work. It almost sounds ridiculous now in looking back. It's like, you actually expected a Christian nation? I mean, don't you know what we've become? You see, that's what's so amazing to look back on history. I used to teach constitutional law And these ideas are so paramount in the understanding of how we even look at the Constitution. The early forefathers, even the ones that weren't Christians, understood the value of self-government. Self-government. See, it's a term that most of us aren't used to saying. I'm used to it because of my studies of uh, Christian history and governmental history. But there's all sorts of different forms of government. Some of us know of civil government. Some of us know of church government, but self-government is the government of a body, and technically I'm in charge of the body of Eric Ludi, 
Yeah, that, that's me. So who's in charge here? Uh, that, that's me. And so if there's any problem in this body, who's responsible? Uh, that's me. You see, so I'm responsible for all the capacity of this body, where these eyes look, what this mind thinks, and the thoughts that I entertain inside of this mind, the emotions I feel, what this hand does. If this hand balls up into a fist and knocks you in the nose, I can't just blame it on someone else and go, hey, I'm just, I'm just sort of passing through. I'm not, I don't have a clue what happened there. I'm responsible for what happens with this hand, where these feet take me. You see, this body needs to be governed. And if it's not governed, well, bad things happen. So if I relinquish any governmental control and I say, hey, look, I'm not going to take care of this body, then all of you would be able to tell overnight this body wouldn't look the same way. It wouldn't be cared for. It wouldn't be tended. Anything and everything could come out. Anything and everything could come in. Bad situation. So in Scripture, this idea is actually enunciated, which is amazing. And that's called self-control. You see, the word self-control is actually not the best one, in, in my opinion. Okay? When, when you get to know the Greek word, you'll, you'll sort of understand where my mind comes with that. Because when I use the word self-control, you have an immediate thought of what that means. In your English understanding, it would mean, I control myself. I understand where that's coming from. However, that's not actually what self-control is. But there's a part truth to it, which is why the word is okay, but not great. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And there it is, self-control. And I made it big, just in case some of you were struggling. I was moving through that so quick. So here's the word in the Greek, egletea. Isn't that a great word? I actually really like this word. Uh, and typically translated self-control, in certain translations, they will translate it as temperance. And that, again, is not necessarily a word that many of us are used to. It's sort of an old-fashioned word. But a temperate environment, for instance, if this environment was always kept at 69 degrees, that would be temperate. And so the same is true with the spiritual life. The word temperance actually is meant to enunciate that there is a certain quality that God works inside of his people that if they ever get too hot towards sin or too cold towards God, an alarm system goes off. And that's actually part of what this word means which is why the word self-control doesn't really match what the word is. But it does, and I'll, I'll go into that. So, egretea. So, the egretean growl is what I want to be talking about today. I have an entire message, I think, called the egretean growl. But it is the feistiness of soul. When the Spirit of God moves in, He is a defender of this body. He wants to see this body become what it ought to be, and that's called egretea. And so when the Spirit of God comes, he puts a growl inside, just like a good father. You know, if someone comes up to the house and, kink, 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 hey, I want to come in and harm this family. Well, a good father has a growl and says, no way, get out, get off my property. Uh-huh, that is egretea. You see, when you hear the word self-control, you don't think that. You don't think of a growl. You don't think of a strength. You don't think of a defense. You think of just a good attitude that doesn't complain. Standing in front of the microwave when your popcorn's popping, and you, know, you just need to be patient. And you need to have self-control so you don't open it too quickly. That, that's not what it's about. Buford, hold the high ground. 
Oh, yeah, Gettysburg. I don't know how many of you. I used to teach Civil War, too. So this is a, this is a big moment in history. Buford, hold the high ground. It's the pivotal command that won the day at Gettysburg. John Buford, who uh, was made major general on his uh, deathbed, uh, but he was a, just a great, humble man in the Union uh, side of things. And in, in Gettysburg, however you go, south or north in your leanings, really doesn't matter. You can still respect Buford, and you can respect the strategy of that day, when basically the Union armies were in a very precarious situation, and Robert E. Lee was coming in with a much more powerful force, and Buford had one job to do, and that was to hold the high ground. Whoever was going to hold the high ground in Gettysburg was going to win. And Buford did it. He held the high ground. And basically, that is the essence of self-control right there. This is the high ground. And whoever takes this wins the day. If your mind is taken, if your heart is taken, that territory is lost, you lose Gettysburg. And so how Gettysburg goes depends on the high ground. Your thoughts, your attitudes, your eyes, where you're looking, what you're feeling, all of these things are part of that battle, and you need to pull a Buford. You need to hold the high ground. When the Egretean growl goes missing, so when you stop fighting over what's coming in, Robert E. Lee is coming in with all his troops. He was a good guy, by the way, even though he's now being cast in the, in the role of being the bad guy uh, in this story. But when Lee and all his troops are coming in, if you are passive and you go, oh, look, there's no way I could fight that anyways, what happens when you begin to set down your sword when you set down your musket, when you set down all that God has armed you with, and you allow the enemy to do whatever he wants in this territory. He that has no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. So one of the things that I say to my kids a lot is, and I've said it in here even a lot, I use the illustration because we're always sitting in our living room, and there's a door, a sliding glass door to the outside, and especially like this week when it was really cold. This illustration just worked really well. And so I said, if I just open up that door, what's it going to feel like in here? See, it was feeling pretty good. It was around 70 degrees inside the Ludi living room. If I just open up that door and I leave it open, what's going to happen? Well, he that has no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. You open up to that power which is outside, and that which is outside is going to come inside, and it's going to control the atmosphere inside your home. So if you want it to be 70 degrees inside your home, you keep that door shut. You keep that cold air out. Simple principle of winter living. You see, if you aren't guarding, if you lose the growl, if you are passive to the cold winds that blow and you don't care about open doors and open windows, well, guess what? Your home is going to be frigid. It is going to be an icebox. And the same is true with your spiritual life. Holding the living room. So here it was. This is basically Eric Ludy's uh, battle cry to the Ludy kiddos uh, this week. Hold the living room! And uh, so they were rising up like Buford uh, this week. Uh, the Ludi family reenacts the Battle of Gettysburg. We didn't really do that. And right now they're listening at home and they're thinking, we didn't have anything to do with Gettysburg, Daddy. Yeah, I'm, I'm likening it to that. Uh, so, but basically what we were dealing with, we had certain, what we could call toeholds. Uh, I don't know if you guys know what a 
toehold, a foothold, or a stronghold is, but it's when you allow in an enemy, the enemy doesn't want to be seen at first. Like, say you have a city that has a wall around it, and it has a little gap in it. Well, the enemy is going to move in through that gap, but he's not strong enough yet to be a formidable foe. And so what he's going to do is he's going to establish a little territory, like put up a little tent and sort of get comfortable and you know, roast his hot dog that night over an open fire. However, what he doesn't want you to realize is that he's not allowed there. And so he's going to be very quiet at first. And then he's going to establish a foothold. He's going to build up a little camp, build an outhouse, and start building a wall. And pretty soon, he's going to form a stronghold. He's going to build a wall, an entire wall, and a little city inside of that territory that isn't his. And this is how the enemy progresses and moves in. You leave the door open, the enemy is going to redefine your life inside that city. And so what we were talking about as uh, the Ludies is there was, for instance, one of the things was fear. Fear and fretting. And so one of the statements was, so what do we do with that? Does that come from God? No. Okay, then how should we handle it? We should hit it in the teeth. Uh, That's classic daddy uh, right there. Hit it in the teeth. I don't even know that my kids know what that means, but hey, I'm going to say it. Hit it in the teeth. We do not accept that. What's your position? In Jesus. Well, then use that position. If this comes from the devil, it doesn't belong in here. We don't accept it. So I, I likened it to two different doors. So the Ludi living room is here, and then you have a door over here, and you have a door over here. The sliding glass door is where all the bad stuff is trying to come in, and then you have the front door. And so the front door is where God is coming in. It's his word. Are you allowing in the word of God? What's the word of God say? The word of God is knocking and saying, hey, I want to define what goes on in your living room. I want to change the atmosphere in there. Are you listening to that? Are you listening to that? Oh, we can't listen to that. That has no business in our living room. Whichever voice you listen to defines the atmosphere of your inner life. The word of God wants to come in and make himself at home and define this territory. If you don't listen to the word of God and you open the door to that, then the devil's going to define the life that you live. How do we rule inside our own lives? Is it even possible? Some of us in this room have been bullied around by the devil for so long that we have forsaken the notion that God actually intends this life to be ruled, to be governed. Some of us have meant well. We've stood up against lust. and We said, no, I don't want to do it anymore. And yet lust continues to rule inside of our life. Or how about fear? Like you just heard me make some comments about fear. It's like, yeah, it sounds good, but I've been fighting against fear my entire life. You see, do we as Christians actually have what we need to boot out the devil? Hmm. That's a fascinating question. The answer to it will change your life one way or the other. For some of you, it's like you're so used to coming to the conclusion that no, no, this is just a life we need to endure. And so fear, lust, pride, greed, all those things can rule my inner life. And I just need to somehow put up with it and know that God's grace is sufficient. Instead of recognizing, no, God's grace is sufficient to boot it out. Big difference between the two. So how do we rule inside our own lives? Is it even possible? But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. So that supports the uh, notion that, see... See, no man can tame it. It's no wonder I have such a tongue problem. 
Every time I'm speaking, I'm saying something I'm not supposed to, but hey, it says it in Scripture that no man can tame the tongue. You're right. It does say that, and that is correct. That is the Word of God. No man can tame the tongue. But I'd like to introduce you to a God who can. A church without self-control is a church vulnerable to faction, division, and contention. If we as the body of Christ do not function understanding this door is closed, this door is open. We are open to the word of God. Jesus Christ rules inside of this living room. And all that comes from the outside is not welcome here. If we start opening that door, close into the word of God when it corrects us and says, keep that door closed. We're like, oh, come on. He can't mean that. And so we open this backsliding door and we allow in the devil's thoughts. What happens? You have a church of faction, division, and contention. It's always the first fruits that begin to show itself. A Christian without self-control. You ever thought of such a thing? A Christian without self-control, closing off to the word of God and opening the sliding glass door to the enemy? Who, what Christian would do that? We could look around this room and find that all of us have probably been caught red-handed doing that at times. Is the devil's tool of choice for invading and destroying the church. You want to invade and destroy the church? Well, that's a great way to do it. Close off to the word of God and allow the devil into your life and call it Christianity. And then stick yourself in a church. And by the way, you will be a wonderful tool in the hand of the devil. A husband without self-control is often perverted, angry, domineering, and violent. A wife without self-control is often lacking discretion, gossiping, slandering, manipulative, and nagging. A father without self-control is often harsh, overreactive, enraged, and abusive. A mother without self-control is often unstable, meddling, overprotective, and indiscreet with her children's secrets. A man, filled with, a man without self-control is often a sexually polluted, rage-filled mess. A woman without self-control is often a loose-tongued, meddling, manipulative mess. Welcome to America. But this isn't supposed to be the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, I know. As I read that, you're, it almost garners a smile, a smirk of recognition. It's like, oh, yeah, seen it. Yeah, been around that. But we're not supposed to find it here. We're Christians. Do we not bear the fruit of God and the evidence of a changed life? Self-control. First, what it is not. So if you want to whip up self-control, like say you have an anger problem, you have a lust problem, you have a meddling problem, you have a gossip problem, whatever it may be, you dig into your pockets and you're like, okay, I'm going to solve this because I need to show self-control and my tongue is getting me into trouble. But didn't you read James? It says no man can tame the tongue. Yeah, yeah, but, but I'm going to try. And so I'm going to dig into my pockets and I'm by my own self am going to control this body. I'm going to control my eyes. I'm going to control my thoughts. I'm going to control my tongue. I'm going to do it. And you will fail. Many of us in here have been so disillusioned in our own walk with Christ because instead of turning to the right source of handling this issue, we've turned to ourselves. We've turned to self to control ourselves. I know that's why this word is misleading. Because the very nature of the word, the very description, you can look at self-control, and I understand why we come to that conclusion. But that isn't what self-control is. So first, what it is not. It is not you 
controlling yourself first. That isn't how it works first. So listen to this, Colossians 2. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Many of us have lived out our Christianity this way. All right, all right. Okay, I am not going to touch that. I am not going to taste this, and I'm not going to handle that. And if I could just somehow keep myself away from doing these things, then I will be spiritual. But it says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Yeah, they sure do. In self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Uh, uh, I could say, welcome to Colossians 2. This is where many of us have struggled and found ourselves. There's two sides of Christianity. You have the side that just says, you know what? I am sick and tired of having all these rules. I grew up with these rules, all this legalism, everyone trying to look good on the outside, but everyone is dead in the church. So you have that side that just throws, a, throws away the restraints, opens the backsliding door and says, come on in. Then you have the other side that has to fake it. And they are doing whatever they can to try and curb their appetites because they have a fleshly impulse and they have thoughts going through their mind that are just not right, but they don't want to say them out loud. So they're doing whatever they can to constrain and to control this life. Both sides don't work. Both sides lead to death. What? So what's mysterious option number three? It's called Christianity. It's called the power of the gospel unto salvation. The gospel of which Paul is unashamed. Self-control. Now, what it is. I know I've already given you this, but I want you to ponder the fact that it is a fruit of something other than you. It is not your work. It is his work. And when you catch that, you understand how self-control works. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And there it is. Self-control. You know that you can mimic God's love at a certain level, but it's not going to be God's love. You can mimic God's joy, his peace, his patience. You can try and showcase these things, but it's not God's version. God is the one that bears the fruit of love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. And he's also the one who bears the fruit of self-control. And that's why that word is somewhat misleading, because we assume that's the one in the list that we're responsible for. It's like, okay, God, I see you got me going. You got me the first eight, I'll take it from here. Yeah, I'll do the eighth one because it's I mean the ninth one because it's called self-control. Okay, so thank you, God, for all your work. Now I'll take over. You cannot. Bear the fruit of self-control in your own flesh. The flesh is at enmity with the very notions of self-control. Touch not, handle not, taste not. These things have an appearance of wisdom, but they will do nothing to curb that indulgence of the flesh. The flesh will always overrule you. The two operations of self-control. Kick out, keep out. One of the ways I've described it in the past is as a boxing ring. Okay, now I, I grew up watching boxing. It's actually sort of embarrassing to think about it. Uh, but I grew up watching boxing. So Hagler Leonard, I mean, I, 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 I was at least, I don't know if I ever paid money to watch him, but I was invited over to watch it. It was a huge deal in my life. 
Some of you are like, huh, what's that? It was big. And so there was a boxing ring, and of course I grew up watching Rocky, uh, and all the ro Rocky one, two, three. Uh, which one was it? The Ivan Drago. Uh, I will break you. Oh, I was so excited when I saw the preview of that. So that's my background. So just so you know, boxing, you know, and you know, all this, and coming to the middle of the ring and doing the stare down. I mean, I was big into that uh, growing up. So as a result, now here's my illustration uh, with it. Poor, I'm sorry that you guys have to endure it. So you have a ring, and it has rope around the outsides, and this is your life, okay? And you're in here, and you've been put against, whoa, whoa! You ever seen who you're up against? The power of sin? I mean, it's not just Goliath. Goliath, you know, it depends on how you measure a cubit. It could be anywhere from nine and a half to like 12 and a half feet tall. That's big, okay? Now, whoa! I mean, the guy's brushing up against the ceiling of the rafters with his head. And all he has to do is go, and you go flying out of the ring about 40 rows back. You can't control this ring. You have no ability to do it. So you hear the command, yeah, you should show a little self-control. And you're like, all right. And you jump into your ring, and the guy just goes, laughs at you and goes, Kapoof. and you go flying out again. Like, this isn't working. Something's not right here. And yet, that is precisely what the commission is. You see, when we become Christians, we yield our ring over to Jesus Christ. We say, I God, I can't control this thing. Whatever the enemy wants to do, he seems to do. The flesh is at large inside, the principle of sin. The enemy is saying, mine. You see, you can't even close the back door. It's like jammed. And so whatever the enemy wants to do, he's doing. Now you come to Jesus. Many of us come to Jesus, and we put a little Jesus sign on the rope. And we say, yeah, the, uh, Jesus, you know, Christian. And yet we still try and control the ring. As if that's a wise thing to do. Don't let him into the ring. Try and keep him out of the ring. Knock him down. These things have an appearance of wisdom. But they will do nothing to actually boot the giant out of your ring. So, Christianity. You yield this ring unto Jesus Christ. You say, God, I have no ability to handle this ring, but I know you do. So I ask for your ability to enter this ring. And by faith, the great boxing champion of all time steps in. And for the first time, you see your enemy shudder. And you sort of look up and go, oh, he just shuddered. Now watch. Because Jesus actually says, he gives you, I mean, he actually says, come on in, come on in. You see, you've died. You relinquished your ring. It's no longer you who lives, but Christ lives in that ring, and yet you still live. How in the world does that work? You're like the little guy at his ankle, like the little sheep next to his shepherd. He goes, come on in, come on in. You see, I'm going to ask you to actually swing my arm. And so you, like, push at the back of his elbow. Go, He's like, see, do, do it, do it, do it. And then and the, and now the big giant goes, flying out. You see, you now have authority. You're not the one that can actually control your ring. It is Christ who can, and his grace, known as self-control, or egretea, that has been given you. But you must exercise it. You must push that authority. You must resist the devil, and he will fly. I know it says flee, but in this illustration, fly really is fun. <laughs> Two operations of self-control. Kick out and keep out. 
Now, one of the things that we did this week, we had actually two different key times as a family, where the first time we were talking about kicking out. And so we're actually talking about renouncing. So my kids, I mean, we must have spent an hour renouncing things, different things that we've allowed in, thoughts, ideas, fear, pride, whatever it was. And we need to kick it out in the authority of Jesus, push behind the elbow and knock them out. Get them out. They have no business being in your ring. And so it's really precious, and my kids were going through that. And so a lot of us maybe even have that notion. It's like, okay, I understand my authority. I understand that enemy cannot remain in my life any longer. All right, boom, he's out. But egretea, or what we understand as self-control, is more than just kicking out. It is keeping out. And that's oftentimes where the word falls short. Self-control doesn't necessarily say that to us. But it is a defense. It's not just an offense to remove the enemy. It's a defense to keep the enemy out. So the enemy has all sorts of different tactics to try and creep back into your life. And so you're the boxer, you know, and you're all warmed up. You're like, this is great. I got a ring again. Oh, this is amazing what God can do with this life. And then there's a little noise over here. You're like, huh? What? And so we turn over here, and what is the enemy doing? It's like if you could see it in a cartoon version, it's like, doom, doom, doom. And then he's like, trying to creep over. The moment we're distracted over here, he's trying to creep into our ring. However, this is what's amazing about self-control or egretea. It's also an alarm system. If the enemy ever touches your rope on the outer rim of your life, you know what goes off? Eh, eh, eh. And so you're over here being distracted and suddenly, eh, eh. you turn around and, ah. And so what do you do? You take that same big meaty fist of Jesus and go, and he goes flying again. You see, this is how we live. Now, it's very, very important to recognize that as Christians, you don't just have a season of your life where you kick out the devil. And then from that point on, it's like, you know what? That was fun. And then you kick back and drink your pina colada in the corner of your ring. Because that enemy is going to come back and he's going to touch the rope, and it's going to go, eh, eh, and you're like, you know what? I'm tired of that type of business. I already dealt with that. It's done. And so he goes, oh, it's one of those kind of Christians, huh? And he's going to sneak right back in. You're like, you know what? You, know, you have no authority here, and you drink your little pina colada. You have to exert the authority. You have to kick out, and you have to keep out, and that's what the growl is. And this is a lifetime. This is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. When he comes in, he is far more concerned about that ring than you are. He's the Holy Spirit. He's not just the Spirit, the fun Spirit. He's the Holy Spirit. He makes you holy. Anything that is not like him is removed and then kept out. But what's getting kicked out? First, self gets the boot. So this is the flow of how self-control works. It's funny. Self-control. And yet, who's the first one to have to be dealt with? Self. You see, you are a problem. And we're going to, in the the upcoming slides here, call it big I and little I. You see, your problem isn't necessarily the letter I. It's the fact that your letter I, which is you, has gotten really big. So it's a capital I. And I think some of you have gone in and changed the font size from 12 to around 19 or 18 or, you know, or 20, somewhere in there. So you're extra big. I think some of you have even underlined it and maybe even turned it red. This is like, oh, that looks really good. You see, 
that's the problem. It's not the letter I. You see, you exist and God loves you, but the big you is actually causing your ring to be controlled by something else. And so the first thing that needs to happen is that I needs to deflate down to a little small I version. And it needs to empty itself. It needs to deny its bigness. And it needs to allow God to take the capital position. So the first thing that needs to get the boot is self. Self-control is built on the fact that the first thing for self-control to work is that self needs to go and get small and allow God to go and get big. And the second is self is empowered to give the boot. Now, one of the ways that I describe it is that if this was Eric's body, and these are the ribs right there, if you look up at the ceiling. Uh, so we're inside of Eric. And there's a glassed-in office back here, and it's called the director's chamber. And that's where I'm sitting. And there's this big leather chair, and I'm snuggled into it. And <clears throat> the moment I sat down in that seat, I empowered something else in my life other than God. You see, when I sat down in that seat, the devil was saying, sit down, you could be as God. And yet he didn't show me the fine print that I am built to be a servant no matter what. I can never be in control. And so I'm either going to be a servant to God or a servant to sin. And so when I took that seat and I exalted self, then what happened is my body, my appetites, and my passions became capital in my life. And as a result, my self-centeredness is actually creating the issue of sin in my life. And in fact, that is what sin is. It is self-sitting in a seat that doesn't belong to him. And so the first thing that the gospel must do is separate me from that seat. And so God comes in and says, Eric, could you bend your knee and could you come down? And so my proper response to Jesus Christ as my king, as my Lord, as my master, as my savior is to say, yes, you are the Lord of this life. You take the seat that is rightfully yours. And when Jesus then takes that seat, this body can now function as it was intended to function. Before this, sin had ruled this body. But now when Jesus took his rightful position, get this, he gave authority to to me. I know this seems really strange. Wasn't I the one that was causing the problems and I needed to be dethroned and made all little? Uh huh. So that I could actually now be a carrying device of his power and his plan. But not for my sake, for his sake. So Eric becomes small and now is given the authority. And then God says, Go, go tell lust to get out, go tell pride to vamoose, go tell fear it has no business in your body. Really? He says, yeah. He says, in my name. And as a result, this is how Egretea works. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit that bears fruit in our life. We humble ourselves, allow Jesus Christ his rightful place, and then he bequeaths to us, conveys to us his authority to tell this body what to do. So first, self gets the boot, and then second, self is empowered to give the boot. Egretea, self-control. The idea involves two seemingly opposite things at once. Number one, self has finally been conquered and is now controlled, while at the same time, self is now made fit to control. 
But though this may seem contradictory, when the key of the gospel is stuck in its lock, the beauties of Christ are revealed. The anatomy of Egretea. The big eye and the little eye. So I took Galatians 2.20 and I, made, I added my little parenthetical statement. So all the parentheses are, are mine. And I put in big eye and little eye. So you'd sort of understand what I was talking about. I, Paul's talking, but this could be just as much you and your big eye. Uh, I, or big eye, have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer big eye who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I, little eye, now lives in the flesh, little eye, lives by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So what you see is Paul is explaining the fact that I is no longer all that, but he still lives. But he's living in a different way. He's living now by faith and dependency. So first, I, or self, must be controlled, submitted and subjected to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the rule of the Spirit of God, and the authority of the word of Scripture. Then it is no longer I, or self, who lives or controls the body, but Christ who lives within the body. Thus, I is now in its proper position, crucified yet alive, denied and yet yielded, to behave as it ought. It is now able to exert the authority of Jesus Christ over the body, its impulses, its weaknesses, and its fleshly longings. Self is now controlled by Jesus in order to now control the body as it ought. For true self-control to work, self must be controlled by Jesus Christ. If self is controlled by Jesus Christ then now self can control its body. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. This is Paul speaking. Know you not that they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain. And every man that strives for mastery is egretumai in all things. Now you should recognize that word. I know it's a different variation of the word, but remember egretea is the word for self-control. This means... Every man that strives for mastery is self-controlled in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, but not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air, but I keep under my body, which is one of the worst grammatical phrases, it has to be in, in, this, in the old uh, King James, but I keep under my body, so I, I did it a little parenthetical to help you understand. That means I keep my body under control and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So what's Paul saying? If you're striving for masteries, if you want to do this as a true spiritual athlete, then you must be self-controlled in everything. And then Paul says, I myself bring my body under that authority of Jesus Christ. And I bring it into subjection. Your sexuality doesn't control you. You, in the authority of Jesus Christ, tell your sexuality what it's going to do. Your thought life does not control you. You tell your thought life how it's going to behave. And if your thought life answers back and says, what in the, you actually think you have authority over me? You say, in the authority of Jesus Christ, I'm commanding you. You see, you in and of your own pocket strength cannot tell your body what to do. Your body will control you. But in Jesus' power, you tell your body what to do. One of the greatest moments in my life was when I realized this. I had been pushed around by lust 
for far too long. And then one day this idea began to come in and come into clarity. Command your body in the authority of one greater than you, Eric. Instead of trying in your own pockets to find the ability to overcome these things, turn to him. He has it. And this is what faith in Jesus Christ is all about. The Egretean growl. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. There it is. Right there. There's the growl. The Spirit of God deposits it within us. It says, let not. Let not that sin in. Close that door. Do not let these things come into this living room. Do not let them infect this environment. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men, be strong. And drizomai is the Greek word for this, quit you like men. It literally means be a man. Be a man. You need to watch, stand fast in the faith and be strong. Be a man. Isn't that an amazing statement to say to the entire body of Christ? Women, men, all. Be a man. Why? What's a man? We all know this, but we understand the man is the first line of defense. He's the one that will rise up and say, no, you cannot enter this country. He's a patriot. He is one who will defend the borders. He is one that, I mean, how many dads do you know when their kids open the door on a cold day are just going to say, yeah, let's just leave it open for a while. It's negative 20 out. You know, I, maybe all the dads are different than me, but I'm immediately thinking budgets when that door opens. It's like, close, hey, close the door, guys, close the door. When you go out, you immediately close the door. See? Be a man. That's a man right there. Not always the best qualities in a man, but say, nonetheless. Self-control, also known as entire body control. God is bringing body control to the body. He is bringing a grace to enable us to actually function in this body and in this corporate body as we ought. And yet we often overlook the fact that we've been given this grace. We don't even expect it. We just put up with the guff of the enemy. We have cold breezes you know, going through our living room and we never think to say, wait a minute, that cold breeze shouldn't be here. Hey, let's close the door, guys. We are the body of Christ. Let's bring our body under subjection. The key points of control in the body. Tongue control. These are like four key, we could call them sliding glass doors. Okay, and how we handle these things is of the utmost importance. Tongue. No man can tame the tongue. However, what has been purchased for us at the cross? But the grace of God the power of the Holy Spirit to move in and to grab this tongue. Now, for those of you that lean in the Pentecostal direction, it should not be overlooked that the first thing that God grabbed the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given was the tongue. That is not an accident. No man can tame the tongue, but we all know a God who can and who does and who will. Eye control. You're not a victim to wherever your eyes look. That is actually part of the body and meant to come under the dominion of God. And so God has a very specific place he intends you to look with your eyes. However, many of us have a wandering eye because we have never understood the grace of God in Jesus Christ to actually bring this body under subjection. Thought control. 
it seems like I gave a message a few weeks ago on thoughts. But thoughts, I'm talking about something where we open our, our sliding door. In fact, maybe more than any other area, we open our sliding door to whatever thought wants to come in, and we treat them all as equals. Not every thought is equal. Every thought needs to be frisked and patted down. Hey, who sent you? Where do you come from? Do you come from King Jesus or from Lucifer? I need to know. Pat it down. Where does this come from? There are thoughts that we're supposed to meditate upon that are pure, that are of good report, that are truly bearing of the nature and the quality of God. And there's thoughts that will very quickly distract you from that quality of God and drive you even deeper into the intent and the plans of the enemy. Appetite control. I did give this message just after Thanksgiving. But appetite control, if your appetites control you instead of God controlling you, something's wrong. And there's all sorts of appetites. I mean, we have, yes, the food appetite. But there's appetites for all sorts of things. You could have an appetite for sleep. You could have an appetite for working. Uh, and it's a craving. It, it is something that you need to do. You are not controlled by any other master but Jesus Christ. And so as a result, each one of these things are the portals or we could call the sliding glass doors into our living room. And if these are not being watched with an egretean watchfulness, with a manly eye to say, hey, whoa, whoa, door a little ajar. Have you ever had it where you're walking through your house? I have this all the time because we have a lot of different inlet points into our house. And it's like, I feel a draft. I feel a draft. And then you start seeking out the draft. Uh-huh. That's Christianity for you right there. You start feeling a draft. What's that an indication of? You've got a breach. So if in your spiritual life you're starting to feel a draft, you don't just sit there and go, eh, someone else's issue. It's your issue. It matters. God is allowing you to feel that draft and notice that draft be- before it becomes something far worse. Your house is not yet overcome by that draft. You're feeling a slight draft because you're seeing the difference in heat and cold. Cherish that conviction and go and find that draft before it's too late. Tongue control, governing the littlest member. So the Holy Spirit, the one famous throughout all history to govern tongues. See, most of us, uh, when it comes to the issue of the human tongue, really don't like it to be talked about. We have a, such an exception in a in accepting in the body of Christ of loose tongues, of gossip, of slander, and yet and overeating. I mean, this tongue gets us into a lot of trouble. I mean, I just threw in eating again. It must be the Thanksgiving thing being so near. But the Holy Spirit is what we could call the one who speaks. He speaks and he's a bold confessor. And so when he comes to this earth, he takes from what is Christ's and brings it to us and he speaks it to our soul. He's a revealer of the word of God. So he's speaking, but what is he speaking? He's using his tongue to promote Jesus and nothing else. That's what he does. The Holy Spirit promotes Jesus and nothing else. Can you imagine the Holy Spirit speaking a word that he shouldn't? Speaking a, you know, a, a crude joke? It's funny, but we know he wouldn't. And yet the very one who is moving in to control your body actually is the one who wants to grab your tongue and train this tongue how to speak what he would speak. Isn't that an amazing thought? Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. In other words, your tongue is the dead giveaway of the fact that you are in God. 
if your tongue is in disobedience to that, we have question marks. Because whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, well, God dwells in him and he is in God. In other words, this tongue is the harbinger of the state of the union. Homilagale, bold confession. I have, a, I have quite a few messages on homilagale. But the word is uh, based on two Greek words, homa, the H-O-M-O in the front, uh, which is actually a very common idea in American uh, English. But in the Greek, it doesn't mean the same. It means of like or of similar origin or like a mirror movement. And so if I did this, what would happen in the mirror? You'd see this. You'd see a mirror of my hand. And that's what hama means. Legale is from the same root as logos or logos, depending on how you would pronounce that, which is what Jesus is. Jesus is the logos or the logos. He's the word. And so it's typically translated word. So it's a picture of Jesus Christ and the text of Scripture. So bold confession is in like or mirror movement to the Word of God. If you want to say it very simply. So when the Word of God reveals himself to us, what do we do with our tongue? We speak in kind. We share the same thing. We are bold confessors. The Holy Spirit has taken from what is Christ, brought it to us, and then we speak it with our tongue. Well, that's a picture of the tongue coming under control. The tongue, the key battle front of the body. Even so, the tongue is a little member. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of hell. And it is set on fire by hell. No man can tame the tongue. So one of the ways of looking at it is, let's imagine it's the Ludi home, and we have the sliding glass door, and then say we have like three other, you know, uh, windows, uh, little areas that can open up. God's going to say, hey, the biggest issue you have, Eric, is this tongue, this sliding door. We need to make sure that this sliding door is dealt with. You see, the sliding door in each of our lives is going to be a dead giveaway of the reality of the transformation in our life. If the Holy Spirit really dwells in you, if you truly have given your life over to Jesus Christ, the Bible could say back, prove it. Prove it. Because your tongue will show it. Your tongue will demonstrate the newness of life. The tongue, the sign of occupied territory. So if you want to check out a life, you come up to them and you examine their tongue. And you listen, you listen, you listen. And what you hear will be the giveaway of if they truly are a believer. Yeah, because they cannot confess certain things unless God dwells in them. Do I hear it? Do I hear it? Acts 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the first thing the Holy Spirit does is he grabs a tongue. Now, this isn't some statement about speaking in other tongues. This is a simple statement to say the Holy Spirit grabs a tongue. When he moves into a body, what's he doing? He's shutting the sliding door. He's gaining control over the key inlet point and output point of the life. How that tongue is controlled defines the whole body. If that tongue is bad, the whole body is defiled. If that tongue is good, the whole body is healthy. And so as a result, we all must yield our body and specifically our tongue to the living God. This is his business. When the Holy Spirit is moving in our life, he wants this tongue. 
testing the man by his tongue. If you wonder what sort of a man he is, just listen. His tongue will ultimately be betray of what lineage he descends. Whether he be of the lineage of Adam or whether he be of the new birth and of the descent of Christ will be revealed in and through his words spoken. By your words you will be justified, says Jesus, and by your words you will be condemned. Nope. Whoa, and no man can tame the, 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 the tongue, but God can. You see, you try and tame your own tongue, and your tongue will betray the fact that all you're doing is giving a creative cover-up to the flesh. You still need salvation. However, if you yield your body unto Jesus Christ, he will take your tongue, and he will demonstrate in and through you that you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. If any man among you seem to be religious, oh, they sure do look spiritual over there. Boy, look how well they seem to live. And bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. So you could have a religion, but if your tongue is not bridled, if your tongue is not under the control of the Holy Spirit, eh, you know, all this show is actually empty. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Well, it's no wonder. I mean, cold and hot is in, the, is in th this sliding door. It's either going to be temperate in here or it's going to be frigid cold. So it's all in that sliding door. And how you handle that sliding door is going to define your life. The key points of control in the body. So here's what we went through before. Tongue control, eye control, thought control, appetite control. So just as I just mentioned tongue, you know, the same thing I could spend time on eyes and where you look with your eyes. It's another inlet point. Your thoughts, it's another inlet point. Your appetite, it's another inlet point. You see, these are all cravings and things that have been warped and twisted by the power of sin. It's this ring. But if this ring is truly going to be owned and occupied by Jesus Christ, what's he going to change? He's going to change these. And he's going to cause them to reveal. What happens to a Christian's tongue? It's actually the device that God uses to showcase his glory and to preach, to teach, to encourage, to exhort. He uses the tongue. How about a Christian's eyes? You know that you can look at a Christian, be able to measure them even by things like an eye. It's like a gauge on them and how they look with their eyes. You know that God is looking somewhere in this earth? Are we looking there? I remember dealing with the issue of uh, the lost and the dying and the weak, the orphan and the widow, and recognizing that my eyes were no longer turning there. I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to notice what God was looking at. I, I could say, yeah, God's probably looking at that, but I don't know that I want to look at that. However, when you submit your eyes, you know what he begins to show you? What he sees? You know that he will show you a lost soul? Whereas before, you would go through your merry life and be all happy and never notice that people were dying and going to hell. When the Holy Spirit moves in, he begins to show you things. Thought control. Wow, boy, I tell you what, I mean, some of you have never even conceived yet of what it would be like to have God enable you to control your thoughts so that the thoughts that you actually are processing through, there are thoughts that will be presented. A lot of thoughts will knock. You're not responsible for thoughts that knock. You are responsible for the thoughts you let in. That is the activity that is dangerous, which is why we are to take every thought captive to the will of Christ Jesus. The thought knocks, and then we say, hey, where do you come from? We frisk it, we pat it down, and we're like, ah, out! You have no business here. And that thought, and some of you that have actually walked through this understand this, that thought could come back a thousand times straight. 
Kink, kink, kink. You again, out. Kink, kink, kink. You again, out. What it's trying to do is wear you down. It's trying to say, hey, come on, I'm going to keep knocking. And what do you say back? I'm going to keep rejecting. You have no business here. Have you ever done a lot of reps in a gym? Mm -hmm. That's like pushing away these thoughts. The enemy's risking a great deal when he keeps coming back and you keep rejecting. Why? Because it's exercise for you. What he's hoping is that after all that exercise, you'll finally let him in, which will deplete you of strength instead of gain strength. But if you resist these thoughts, you get stronger in and through the process. No, 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 no. You must know your position. You must have the and growl firmly in place. You must hold the high ground. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. You see, when this door is shut, when the tongue is gained, when the word is governed, well, suddenly you begin to realize, like, aha, you see, this is the strength to control the entire body. When the tongue is gained, so is the rest of the body. The two operations of egretea, kick out, keep out. Fully functional in the strength of Christ. When the egretean growl gets to growling. Remember at the beginning I said, what happens when the egretean growl goes missing? Well, we have all sorts of problems. What if it gets to growling? What if we as a church, we're like, no, uh-uh. This isn't allowed in here. No, 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 no. We keep the living room. What if, what if, what if the inner alarm is working? We're constantly examining motive, inspecting behavior, and evaluating the spiritual thermostat in the soul. What if the soul is ready for response? Its sword is drawn and ready to respond to any sign, no matter how small of a soul deterioration, moral lassitude, or the encroaching nearness of sinful pollutants. I remember uh, Hudson Taylor, I believe it was, that had the, the list of the seven steps upward and the seven steps downward. So in your spiritual life, there's seven steps that take you up to heaven and there's seven steps that take you down into the basement of hell. And step number one down was taking sin lightly. The first step away from God and away from his heavenly life is to treat small things in your life as if they don't matter. Well, that's the work of hell if I've ever heard it. Come on. It doesn't matter. Just open it up an inch. It's just an inch. Just open up the backsliding door an inch. Give me a little fresh air. You take it lightly. That one inch is sufficient. If you leave the house for a day and your backsliding door was open an inch, you tell me what's going to go on in your house that day. It's going to be cold. You see, that atmosphere doesn't need a lot. It just needs a crack. And that crack will begin to invade your entire life. Number three, the authoritative position is recognized. The soul knows its authority, and so when the invader comes, it knows its position in Christ. It exerts the presidential authority. It wields the governmental mandate to spiritually take out that which threatens the Christ life forming in the soul. So, I mean, one of the ways, I remember when I was first giving this a few years ago, I was dealing with the title, License to Kill, and I was like, you know what? That just doesn't sound good, and especially with all that we as Christians get accused of anyways. And yet, spiritually speaking, we are licensed by the king of kings to take out these thoughts, to take out these emotions, to take out these temptations that are coming against us. We actually have authority to nullify them and to deaden them against our lives. So however you interpret that, you have authority 
to take out enemy strongholds. You have authority to keep out enemy strongholds in your life and in your soul. Testing your personal egreteia. Are you ready to defend the body of Christ? You see, as self-controlled men and women of God, we start with our own body. And what if you are learning from the Spirit of God how to control your own body? Do you know that you're fit for marriage? That's exactly the concept. You would be fit for marriage once you know how to control your own body. You're controlling your own thoughts. You're controlling your own emotions, your own appetite. Now you're fit to rule a family. So prove it. Prove it in your family. And then if you've proved it on your family, you know what you're fit for? To rule the body of Christ. If you're fit to rule the body of Christ and you're showing yourself faithful in that, you're fit to rule multiple bodies. If you're fit to rule multiple bodies, you're fit to rule nations, technically. You're fit to rule worlds. You see, it's the same principle, the same principle of self-governance. If you learn it in the small package known as you, then you will be fit in the same authority, in the same conviction, in the same faith, in the same valor to exercise it in the next dimensions of your life. Are you ready to defend the body of Christ? So we start with this body, and then we're made fit to stand up and defend the bigger body. How egreteia is measured. By how quick you notice the invader is your spiritual alarm working. So some of us are a little dull in this. You know, the, the, the house has a little breeze coming into it, and you don't notice it. You're walking around, and you're just totally uh, not sensitized anymore to the fact that it's cold. And your spouse will be like, do you feel a draft? No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And your, your, your spouse may be thinking, I don't know, your attitude sure does stink. Are you sure you're doing all right? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. You see, you've been deadened to that alarm, that temperance that the Spirit of God has given you. You haven't exercised it. And if you don't exercise temperance, for instance, when that alarm goes, eh, you immediately, <sighs> I had a, a game that I played with myself. My alarm would go off at 441. I used to get up at odd numbers. And my alarm would always go up at 441. And I hated the sound of my alarm. This is before the days of all sorts of creative ways that you can wake up. There was only one way back then, and that was, dee-dee, dee-dee, dee Oh, I couldn't stand that sound. And so I would be laying there asleep, and my alarm would go, dee-dee, and I'd go, and I would turn that thing off before it could go, dee-dee, a second time. That was always my goal. Well, you know what? There's a spiritual truth in that. When that alarm goes off in your own soul, you turn it off, and you face that devil. You understand the authority you have, and you are quick to respond. And that's a measurement of your self-control. That's a measurement of your egretean growl. If you find it going, and then you like snooze, snooze, you got some problems. And many of us are pushing snooze buttons in regards to the threats to our soul. Now, this isn't making any comment about snooze buttons and the ethical dimensions and moral dimensions of actual snooze buttons. In our spiritual life, we don't push snooze. By how quick you exert your position in Christ and make right what the enemy is attempting to make wrong. This is how egrite is measured. By how quick you exert your position in Christ. What's your position? I'm in Christ. You must know that immediately. You reckon yourself truly in that position so that you're in a position to fight. If you start digging in your own pockets and you forget your position, you forget what enables you to push this out, you're not going to be in good straits. But by how quick you exert your position in Christ and make right what the enemy is attempting to make wrong, are you strong to respond quickly and decisively? The flesh bait. 
You see, there's various reasons why we don't kick these things out. And that is because we have been conned into thinking that opening this door for a little will give a little fresh air. You see, we have a mentality in our spiritual life that can easily be conned when we open this door instead of the front door to the Word of God. The Word of God is very clear on the matter. But when we're limited in the Word of God and we're not spending the time in the Word of God that we should, we become extra vulnerable to this Word, the Word of the devil. And what does he say? Come on. Give it another look. Have you ever had that? You look away from something like, no. And then, it, what do you, it's really weird, but there's actually something talking to you. Come on. Come on. Give it another look. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, come on. You've been, you've been looking away for so many weeks now. It's just one look. Uh-huh. One look. It's just, you know, just open it up for a couple of hours. It's not that big of a deal. You can always close it. Give it a little longer. You're caught in sin red-handed. The Spirit of God is convicting you. You even know that what you're doing in that moment is wrong. But what does the enemy say? Come on, you're already doing it. You might as well give it a little longer. The moment you have an alarm go off, you respond. The moment. Do not give it a little longer. Do not give it another look. You deserve this. I, I don't know how in the world we get conned into that. You deserve this. Jesus Christ gave up his life, suffered and died so that you can be rescued from this. You deserve this? You deserve to spit on the face of Jesus? How did that come in? Where does that come into the whole framework of Christianity? We do not deserve this. You want to know what you deserve. It's eternal separation and damnation. That's what we deserve. Let's not talk about what we deserve. Don't fall for this. He deserves something more. So in every moment, you do not fall for this. You rise up with an egretian growl and stamp out that alarm. God knows you need a little break. Come on. You can't, you can't live this way just like day in and day out. You have to take it easy once in a while. You have to think of you. I mean, you've been being the, you know, the papa bear for a long time. You know, let someone else do that. Just coast for a little bit. Ooh, dangerous, dangerous words. And they've snagged more than a few ankles of the saints over the years. God will forgive this. We have a very gracious God. And one of the things I teach my kids is no matter what you've done, when you ask me for forgiveness, my answer will always be yes. Why? Because God's answer to me is always yes. In the blood of Jesus Christ, the answer is yes. But we do not take advantage of that yes. We show honor to Jesus Christ for what he has done. We do not cheapen the shed blood of Jesus Christ for he has given us grace so that we could say no instead of trying to get him to say yes. He does say yes. He's a very gracious God. And whatever turn you are at in your life, if you've been entertaining these, turn back to Jesus Christ and you will find the astounding yes. But we never presume upon that yes and we never take advantage of that, yes. For that life lived is not to the glory of God. All it does is showcase the devil's behavior. And we have been set free to reveal his behavior. The Egretean growl. So here's what we say. Our alarm's going off. The enemy's trying to move in. No! Ah! Uh-uh. 
once you don't, get out. This territory belongs to Jesus Christ. That's the good stuff. That's the stuff that works within the Christian. It's the funniest thing. We're actually the nicest people on planet Earth, full of love and kindness, mercy. I mean, you can spit in our face, and we'll say, you can spit again. Punch us in one cheek, we'll turn them to the other also. And yet, when it's the devil that comes, we hit him in the teeth. You see, there's a difference between humanity and spiritual powers. The spiritual powers have already been judged. They were judged on the cross, and now we're in full agreement with the work of the cross to say, no! You know what's funny? Scripture says, resist the devil, and he will flee. And then it says, resist not evil. Oh, what? Well, which one? One comes from man, humans. And we, when, they, when the evil comes, we respond with love and mercy and grace. But when it comes from the devil, no. You need to practice the no, the uh-uh. This body needs to be self-governed. There are thoughts that will come today. There are emotions that will come today. There will be baits for your appetite today. And I want you to allow that alarm system to be fully functional. And I want you to turn before it goes dee another time and and turn it off. You have a position in Jesus Christ. Use it for his glory. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.